0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So, by a show of hands, how many do we have with us today that would consider yourself a fan of the pipe organ? That many, okay. All right, so those of you who had your hands up, both of you, uh, will know an important thing that occurred in the world of pipe organs this month on September 5th. Uh, There is a pipe organ that was created in Halberstadt, Germany, that has been playing a piece of music now for 20 years. And the piece of music is entitled As Slow As Possible, and they are trying to take this literally and play that piece of music as slow as possible. And so this, this month, September 5th, there was actually, ready for it, a note change in this organ. And so people gathered from everywhere. You can see, I think we have a picture on the screen. People gathered from all over to see this happen, to hear this take place. The piece of music actually started in 2001, and it began with, ready for this, a rest. That's how the piece of music begins is with a rest. So everybody probably gathered in 2001, got all excited for nothing, right? And that rest lasted for like two years. And then the note that we have been on has been going on for the last seven years. This pipe organ has been created that it just indefinitely played just through like sandbags and like bellows and all of these things. And so for seven years, there was one note and then on September 5th, that note changed. And this piece of music will continue to go for, ready for this, 639 years. This organ will be playing the song as slow as possible. And when I I read this article, literally the, the words in my head said, I don't have time for this, right? Like, which I don't, 600 years, like I don't have time for it. But really, I think what I meant was, I don't have the patience for this, Right, with everything happening in our world right now, like what we don't need is a slow organ, right? Like you wanna hear a note change? I can give you a note change real fast. Ba-ba, there you go, did it, ta-da. There's a second one, right? Like you're welcome, I can do that super fast. I don't have the patience for this. And, and I think a lot of you might be able to kind of feel where I'm going from because I think slowly we have lost a tolerance for the slow. Does that make sense? I think slowly our level of patience has gotten less and less and less. And this started back in like 1946 when they created the first microwave oven. And now we can have popcorn in a matter of three minutes rather than 30 minutes, right? Revolutionize everything. Now you can eat a terrible meal in just three minutes. You know, just hit the buzzer and wait for that like sandwich to heat up or whatever it is and then just be sad about what you ate. That's what the microwave has done for us. We no longer have the patience to baste the whole turkey and do that stuff. Then fast forward a couple of decades, now information is easily ready ready for us, readily available, I think is the term I'm grasping for. Information, you no longer have to go to the library if you're researching something and open up the Dewey Decimal cabinet, you know, like, and, and go through all those little cards and then go search your book. You just go to Google and you look up whatever you're doing. And then if we fast forward even from there, now we don't even have to go to a computer. We have a cell phone, right, with the invention of the iPhone. You can look up anything you want to know on your phone. You can have music on your phone. You can have maps on your phone. You can have all this stuff readily available to you. And it happens in the blink of an eye. And so slowly, I think our advances in technology has made it so that we have less tolerance for the slow and our patience has shrunk. Now if you think about it too, like I don't know if you were watching this stuff this week but they announced the new Apple Watch which I made the mistake of calling it an iWatch in front of a couple of college students this week and they just open mouth laughed at me. They're like, iWatch, ha ha ha. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like it was the I everything until this one. But with the Apple Watch now, it's like we're saying I don't even have time to do this, right? Like I can't be getting in my pocket for my iPhone. Like I gotta have it on my wrist. I gotta have it ready at all moments. All of these things have sped us up And I think they've given us less patience for that which is slow. The problem here is that the life of a Christian involves a lot of slowness. The life of a Christian, the process of salvation is a slow process that requires us to do a little bit of waiting. But we don't like to wait. And so as we open up the book of Philippians, if you have your your notes or your Bible with you this morning, as we open up the book of Philippians, we're going to find Paul, the writer of this letter, doing some waiting in prison. And so if we were to reverse and go back to to June of 2019, last summer, June of last summer, we actually went through, we're going through the book of Acts, and we looked at the life of Paul and how he got to where he is in prison here. We hear about his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9, where he was actually hunting down and trying to kill followers of Christ. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, changed his life forever. Paul becomes a great missionary and goes all over the known world at the time spreading the word of Jesus. And as he's teaching about this in Jerusalem, Paul gets arrested for his teaching. And he stays in kind of like a, almost like a political prisoner in a lot of ways. And he's in, in prison for a time and then he's transferred to Rome. And we get to the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 13 and 31. This is kind of the summary we hear of the ending there. It says, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. So that is the setting that Paul is writing from. It's in a house that he's apparently paying for, even though he's considered a prisoner. And there would be a Roman guard with him at all times, possibly even chained to him at all times. People could come and visit, but Paul was a prisoner. He didn't have his freedom to leave from there. And it's in this setting, in this time of waiting, that Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and the book of Philippians that we begin this morning. And so we know who wrote it. We know where he is writing from. Well, let's look at who he is writing to as he opens it up. He says this in in Philippians 1, just the very first verses of it. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find out here, just real quick, that Timothy is with Paul in some sort of way, and we know this, and, and I think Paul mentions Timothy as he writes it, not to say that like Timothy is writing this letter, but because Paul is going to send Timothy to the Philippians. He talks about this later on in the book. But who are these people? Who are these holy people that Paul talks about? Some versions, instead of holy people, will use the words saint, which saints doesn't necessarily mean. That term has kind of gotten hijacked. It's not necessarily like uber Christians, people that can do miracles and things. It's just Paul's way of referring to believers in Christ. So the holy people, the saints, those are the Christians in Philippi. And so if we go back to Acts chapter 16, again, this is what we talked about last summer. Acts chapter 16, we meet these people that started this church in Philippi. There was a lady named Lydia And Lydia is down, and she's doing some washing, and and Paul meets her at a river, and and Paul talks to Lydia, and Lydia becomes a believer in Christ. And we're told that she dealt in purple cloth, so she's a business owner, probably a wealthy business owner, and she meets Jesus through Paul, and that changes her life. Later on, we hear about this slave girl who is demon-possessed. And the owners of this slave girl are using her to be a fortune teller to other people and make money off of her. Well, she sees Paul and Silas going through this area of Philippi, and she starts yelling these crazy things as they're going. They can't do their job because of her. And so they cast this demon out of her. She's released from that darkness. But now her slaveholders can no longer make money off of her fortune telling. And so they have Paul and Silas arrested and thrown in jail. And there, Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns. And in the middle of the night, the earth shakes and the doors of their jail cell fly open. And the jailer is there watching all this happen. He's ready just to end his life because he thinks his job is not being done well and that they'll end it for him if he doesn't. But Paul and Silas are like, whoa, 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 hold on. And they tell him about Jesus. And then this jailer, this Roman jailer, he comes to Christ also. And the jailer and Paul and Silas, later on, they all go to Lydia's house. And so we hear that Lydia has started a church in her house with people like this blue-collar jailer and likely this slave girl that was formerly demon-possessed. That is the beginning of the church in Philippi. And as Paul leaves, we can only imagine that it grows from there. People that are wealthy— people that are poor, people that are blue-collar, all gathered together. It is an eclectic group of people. I mean, just imagine the potlucks that they got to have, right? Like, you got a girl who used to tell fortunes. Like, this is going to be a good time. So these are the people at Philippi. This is who Paul is writing to. The location of Philippi would be in modern-day northeastern Greece. You could go there, the northeastern part of Greece today. And it was known back then as being like little Rome because it was a Roman colony. And so the people there, they they benefited greatly from being this Roman colony. They didn't have to pay the taxes that a lot of the other cities or colonies would have to pay. They didn't have to be inscribed into the Roman military in the same way that other people would have to be. So they were free of those kind of things, but also they benefited from the fact that it was a military outpost for Rome, so they also had the protection of Rome right there. The people in Philippi were very educated. They would speak Latin, which was kind of the language of the educated rather than the normal Greek. They would dress like high Roman kind of people. And so this was an area, just to put it in our terms, a well-to-do area. That was Philippi. It was well-to-do, an area of privilege. If any of you watch Parks and Rec, this would be not Pawnee, this would be Eagleton, right? It's the city that everybody doesn't like. Like, oh, Eagleton, they think they're all good. That's Philippi. And so we know who's writing. We know who he's writing to. We know about their area. Well, why is Paul writing them? And we see this because we learn that they have sent a gift to Paul while he's in prison. What have they done with their, their privilege and their wealth? Well, they've gathered together a donation for Paul. And so Paul says in verse three, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That partnership is that gift sent to them, sent to Paul by a guy named uh, Epaphroditus. And so we'll hear more about him, but in a way we could almost look at the book of Philippians as like a grand thank you note. Paul wants to say thank you to them, but then he has more things to tell them, and he does this through the words of a prayer. And so Paul says to this, he talks about just how much he loves them. He says, it's right for me, in verse seven, to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. So Paul prays for the Philippians. He's thankful for them, but then he's praying to them in this intro to his letter. And here's where we really get down to it, okay? All of this, I've been going fast, I know, and I'm sorry. All of this is kind of intro to where I really wanna get to. And that's here in verse six. So verse three, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse four, and in my prayers for you, I pray with joy, verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's where we get our title for this series, being confident of this, I'm convinced of this. Paul talks here of something that has begun and then something that is going to come to completion. And then he talks about the carrying on, the in-between times of those two things, but he speaks of it as if they all know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about this, the day of Christ Jesus. He's speaking terms, and he's not giving explanations for them, so he's assuming that his listeners would hear it. So what Paul talks about when he talks about this process that has begun, something that's going to come to completion and the carrying on of that until the day of Christ Jesus, he's speaking about things that he's just like, I know you believe this. We've talked about this. This is a common belief among us. But my question today is, is it a common belief among us? In our church among Christians today in 2020 America is what Paul is talking about, a common belief. And I wonder if it really is, because when I get to this verse, I'm like, wait, what? Like, I kind of pause, like, what is Paul talking about? So we gotta break this down. And first we have to start with this concept of the day of Jesus Christ. And ask the question, what is he referring to? We might have an idea in our mind of what that might be. Well, let's make sure we really know what the day of Jesus Christ is. So if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, And and Jewish readers or Jewish hearers would have heard the Old Testament in Paul's language. We hear several verses, several instances in history about the day of the Lord or the day of God. In Isaiah 13, six, I'm gonna read three verses, three examples for you. Isaiah says this, a prophet, he says, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. This is a prophecy Isaiah spoke against Babylon. Ezekiel said this, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And this is Ezekiel speaking against Egypt and other nations. Joel 1.15, Joel says, alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. And this was actually a prophecy against Judah, one of the nations of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, when we hear the day of the Lord spoken of, And this is what some of Paul's hearers would have heard when he talks about the day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is always speaking of God's judgment on the evil nations and the destructions of those nations because of their sins. Sometimes it was foreign nations, but in the exile of Israel, we even see that God's judgment, the day of the Lord came upon Israel. And so right here, Old Testament, we hear the day of the Lord is a day of destruction. And yet Paul, in verse 6, he's talking about it as like a time he's looking forward to. He's saying, but the day of Jesus Christ, like, we are looking forward to this. Well, how can he speak of it in a happy manner? We have to understand that shift of language, that it was the day of the Lord, but now he speaks of it as the day of Christ. Well, in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks of the coming judgment, there's kind of a shift of gears, And so in John 5, 27, Jesus speaks of his father and he says he has given, and he has given him, talking in the third person himself, God has given Jesus authority to judge because he is the son of man. Jesus is saying God has transferred the authority to to exact judgment to me because I'm the Messiah. And then later on, Luke 17, Jesus says this, for the son of man in his day, will be like lightning which flashes and lights upon the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the Old Testament, it's God's judgment on the nations. In the New Testament, it's called the day of Christ. And we begin hearing about Jesus's judgment upon humanity. The coming of Jesus, he says, it'll come after I've suffered many things. So it comes after his death and his resurrection will be the day of Christ, the judgment upon humanity. So again, when Paul talks about the day of Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about. But as I hear of judgment and destruction, I'm not as excited as Paul is when he talks about it to the Philippians. When Paul talks about the coming day of the Lord, he's talking about it as something to be looked forward to. But I'm hearing about judgment and destruction. How do we get to there? Again, if we went even further, if we went to the book of Revelation and saw John's vision in Revelation, Revelation 20 talks about this day of judgment. It paints a big picture. It's a vision that John sees of this happening, the day of Christ. We have Jesus on a throne, and in front of him is a book spread open, the book of life. And in Revelation 20, it talks about how all the dead have gathered before this throne, and it is there that Jesus judges their deeds And those whose names are not found in the book of life on the day of judgment, the Bible tells us in Revelation 20 that they will be cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. That is eternity separated from God in hell. That's what happens on the day of the Lord. So again, let's look back at this because Paul is is so excited of it, and he's saying, I'm confident of this that he who began a good work and he will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Well, what is this good work? And then what is this completion that we are to look forward to on the day of Christ? If we look at this again, if we look at Jesus' words in 524 of John, John 524, he says, truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but crosses over from death to life. Let me read that again. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me, that's the good work Paul is talking about that has begun in the Philippians. And he says, that person has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's the completion of that good work that comes on the day of the Lord. Truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. That's why Paul can talk about the day of the Lord in a positive light. Because for those who this good work has begun in, those who believe in Christ Jesus, they're not judged. It's not a time of death for them. It's a time of life for them. And so Paul is saying that's the day when it's all complete in us. That's the day when the promise comes true and for us eternal life begins in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus. That's the day of the Lord for a believer. That's something we can get excited about. That's something we don't have to fear if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if the work has begun in you. So we have this idea of the work that has begun. We know that someday it's gonna complete. We know the day of the Lord didn't come in Paul's day. Didn't come in the day of the Philippians. It hasn't come in the generation since. It hasn't come in our day yet. So we find ourselves in this space in the middle in that carrying on, that he would carry on a good work in you to the day of completion. We're in that moment of waiting, of slowness. But we don't have a tolerance for the slow, do we? All of our technology has reduced our level of patience. So we get to a point where we're like, I don't know about this day of the Lord if it's ever coming or not. And because it's so slow, like, what do you do usually something slow? Like, your computer gets real slow these days. What do you do? You toss it out, you get another one. We've learned, we've started learning that if it's slow, it means it's broken. And so as we've had to wait, as it begins to feel slow waiting on the day of the Lord, we might start to think, well, this whole system's broken. Maybe it's not real. I think, though, we need to have a perspective of where God is in the course of eternity and slowness and where we are. We get a good 80, if you're lucky, like maybe 90 years or more, that things can feel slow like when you have that, your generation, but God has lived all of them, right? So slowness for God isn't like what we're thinking of. But what do we do in the meantime? What about the right now, that that moment of carrying on that Paul writes to the Philippians about? Here's what he says, being confident of this, that he began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. This in-between time, that's the process of being made complete. He doesn't say that it happened when you believed. He doesn't say that you were done when it began. He says, you're done, your process of salvation is over on the day of the Lord. And what we're talking about here is something we often skip, and it's the concept of sanctification. So let's just pretend we're in theology class together. Class, say sanctification with me. Sanctification. Very good. It's one of those, like, good-sounding words, right? Like, you sound, you sound smart when you say it. Let's make sure we really understand what sanctification is. Basically, simply put it as the process of becoming more like Jesus, It is that carrying on that Paul speaks of, of becoming more like Christ. We believe in him, we give our lives to him, but that's not it. That's not where it ends. It would just be kind of a waste of time if that was it and then we're just done. No, from there on, we begin this process of salvation, of growing in our faith, of growing in Christ so that one day we will be like him. We will be like Jesus. We will be perfect. We will be sinless one day. And right now we're in that process. I think all too often we treat salvation as if it's just like a doorway that you enter, you go through that door, maybe you're baptized, and you're done. But I think it's healthier and more biblical for us to look at the process of salvation as being more of a pathway than a doorway. It is something that continues in your life. It's not over after you pray to accept Christ and have your sins forgiven. That's when the work begins. The process of salvation, that is sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Another way to think of it, I wanna make you raise your hands on this one, but some of you uh, may have had yourself or someone in your family may have experienced a joint replacement, like a hip or a knee replacement, right? I think that's a good way to think about what salvation should be. The, The new hip is salvation, right? But if you just got the new hip and then the doctor just sent you on and that's the end of it, it wouldn't help you very much, would it? After the surgery, after the replacement of the joint comes what next? The physical therapy, which if you've been through it is not comfortable, it's not fun, it can be very tedious, but without it, you can't use that hip right. Salvation is like that. We've got the new hip, we've been made new, but now we're in the process of learning to walk and learning to walk like Jesus and with Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the work begun that's coming to completion, but we're in the middle of that, the carrying on. That's sanctification. And often this is a slow process. And again, we think that slow means it's broken. If you don't don't see it happening in you, you're like, ah, man, I'm still messing up. I'm still sinning. Maybe it's broken. Maybe this whole process doesn't work. I think it can just be slow and tedious. And so we're stuck in this point of waiting where we have Christ, but we're not completely like him, yet we're in the process of it. But how can we be confident in this? How can we be convinced of this like Paul says Well, let's look right here in the second part of of the words of Paul in this this section. In verse 9, Paul continues his prayer and he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you're taking notes, if you've got this thing here, it'd be good just to underline these little places or just jot them down. I think we kind of have signposts of sanctification. Markers that if you see this, you know you're on the right path. And first he says, I hope that your love grows, that your love would abound more and more, that you're loving God more and you're loving people more. That's a signpost of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, particularly when you can begin to love the people that are hard to love. Because we see Jesus do that all the time, Right? Particularly when we're loving people that might not be like us or might not agree with us. When we can love them, man, that's sanctification happening. That's Jesus doing his work in our life. Next, he prays that knowledge and depth of insight would grow, that we would know more about God, that we would know God better. So we love more, we, we know God better. Second, he talks about discernment growing, that being able to say, see what is right and what is wrong, that that would grow in us. And then finally, that we'd be filled with fruit of righteousness, which I think the Philippians have given evidence of in what Paul refers to as their partnership with him in the gospel. They're giving to him. These are their actions, their ways of serving Christ, of bearing fruit and taking part in ministry. So these signposts of sanctification, I know I'm going fast, but it's that we would know God more, we would love him more, that we would see his discernment and us growing our ability to see right and wrong, but then also the fruit of righteousness growing with us. And if these things are happening in us, I think we can have confidence that we're on the right track. I think we can have confidence that this good work began in us, that we are believers of Christ. But on the other side, if these things aren't happening, if you're not seeing these signposts of Jesus's work in your life, then maybe you're not on the right track. Maybe you need to take a step back and say, I don't know if this is happening in my life. And I'm not saying like that it's just really slow, that you don't see it happening, but that it's not happening. Maybe if that is you, you need to take a moment today and say, am I confident that I am clear, that I am with Jesus, that my name is in his book? Am I confident for the day of Jesus Christ? That when he judges me, I will go from death to life and not to the second death. Am I confident of this? And we can be confident in that if we see the signposts of sanctification in our life. And and here's the good news, because I think often when we get into this, I don't wanna start preaching a works-based theology. We know that it's not our work. It's not our producing fruit. It's not our loving people more that gets us to heaven. It's the salvation produces that work in us, right? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, sanctification is the signs of salvation, not the cause of salvation. So I'm not saying you don't see these four things in your life, you were never saved, or I kind of am saying that, aren't I? I just did sort of say that. I think you know what I mean. These things aren't what are making you saved. But if they're not in your life, I would question, have you been saved? If that's not in your life, I would question, have you really had a salvation experience or have you just fooled yourself? Have you fallen to a different gospel? But here's the good news to keep us away from that idea of working so that we don't end up with a works-based salvation is that we're not the ones that do this work. We're not the ones that produce these signs in our lives. Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, he says that we are transformed into his image, that's sanctification, with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We don't do the transforming, God does the transforming. John 17, 19, Jesus said, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus does it. The Spirit does it. So if we believe in Christ, Christ begins this work in us, and we're on that pathway to completion. And it might happen slowly, but because of his work in us, now we have the ability to love more. To know God more, to discern right and wrong from one another, and to bear fruits of righteousness, not off of our own energy, but off the energy of the Spirit within us. And so here's my question this morning as we open up the book of Philippians and ask this question Am I confident of this? Can I be convinced of this? You this morning, there's two things I want to know if you are convinced of. Do you have confidence that you have salvation? And I don't wanna pretend that everybody that comes in our building or might be watching online, that everyone considers himself a follower, a believer of Christ. And if that's not you, the Bible, it very much is very clear about what will happen at the end of time. That Jesus will return one day, and it feels slow, but the Bible tells us it's gonna happen. Everything the Bible has said up to this point has come to pass, so I think we can trust that Jesus will return. And on that day, on the day of Christ's judgment, can you stand confidently before him knowing that your name is in his book because you have given your life and your sins over to him because you allowed his sacrifice on the cross, his blood poured out to be a death on your behalf? Can you confidently say, I have done that? That's question number one. Question number two is, are you being sanctified? Are you saved? Are you sanctified? Those are our two questions this morning. And we can see sanctification happening in us if we see these signposts, if we see demonstration of love in our life, if we see a demonstration of our knowledge of God growing, if we see demonstration of the fruits of righteousness happening through us, serving God, through us, not of our own accord, but Christ working in us. Do you see that happening? And if you don't see that happening in your life, maybe you need to go back to question one. Wow, Right? Maybe your attention needs to be gotten with like a loud boom. If you can't see the process of sanctification happening in your life by the the earmarks that we just discussed, maybe you need to go back to question number one and be very sincere with yourself. Am I sure? Am I confident of this, that I have a relationship with Jesus? And so that's where we're at today. I know it's a lot of information, but I hope it doesn't just stay in your head. I hope it's something that comes to your heart. And so that's gonna be my prayer for us this week that we can really analyze where we stay with Christ, but also are we on that pathway to completion? Has the work begun in you? Do you see the process happening in you? And can you stand confidently that one day you'll be with Jesus in eternity? So I wanna end with this one verse. It's 1 John 3, 2. This is my favorite verse of the Bible, and I've probably preached it a zillion times, but I love it. It says this, Dear friends, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has yet been made known. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let me read it again. We are children of God, the good work has begun in us. And what we will be has not yet been made known. How the return happens, how the the day of judgment will happen, what we'll look like in eternity with Jesus, how all that goes, we don't have all the details, but here's what we know, that Christ will appear again. He promised it, it's going to happen. And we know that when he appears, if we stand with him, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. So our job right now in the middle of that process is to see him more and more and more every day. So that every day as we see him more, we're made like him more. And the next day when we see him more, we're made like him more. And yeah, we're gonna keep messing up in the meantime, but Jesus is gonna be working on us so that one day we get to stand with him in eternity. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. For the promise that you have for each and every one of us this morning. And I pray, God, that we could be confident in your promise. I pray, God, that your day, your return, the day of Christ would not be a day of terror for us, but a day of joy that we look forward to because we know we will be made like our Savior. And so I pray for the right now. I pray for the time of the slow. I pray for the time of the waiting and ask God that you would use that time to make us look more like you.